Acts chapter 1. Let's pray again. Lord God, this is your word. We pray for your spirit. We ask, O oh God, that we might know what is spoken here, not just by the hearing of our ears, but by the receiving of the truth in our souls. O oh Lord, may we know this same power of which our Lord spoke in its proper measure in this place this evening. Would you grant, O oh God, that we might see more of Christ in all his glory as our risen King and our sovereign Saviour, we ask it in his name, depending on your gracious spirit and asking now that you as the, the father of lights and the giver of every gift would grant to us again more of your gracious spirit. In, we ask it through Christ our saviour. Amen. Amen. When we began to look at the... Uh, history of the Acts, sometimes called the Acts of the Apostles, we said last week that Luke doesn't think of it in quite that way. As far as he is concerned, volume one of his history, what we call the Gospel of Luke, was everything that Jesus began to do and to teach. Then Acts, volume two of his history, is all that Jesus continued to do and to teach by his spirit, through his apostles. As the, uh, the hinge between Luke and Acts, we're in that uh, moment before the ascension of Jesus Christ, when the risen Jesus went up to heaven to sit down at the right hand of his heavenly Father. And in that space between resurrection and ascension, when the Lord Jesus appears to his disciples, he speaks primarily of two things, the kingdom of God and the spirit of God. And that's what we find here. In verses 4 through to 8, two conversations are recorded. And it's at least possible that there's quite a distance in time between them, hours, maybe even days. In verse 4, being assembled together with them, perhaps referring to a meal with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard from me. For John truly baptised with water, but you shall be baptised with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then you note in verse 6, there seems to be something of a passing of time. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. These two conversations begin with a command, go on with a promise. The second starts with a question and concludes with a rich answer. The command is there in verse 4, not to depart from Jerusalem, 
but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. Now, it's important for us again to to understand the way that this holds over from what Luke recorded in his gospel. If you remember that as we come to the end of Luke 24, he commanded them that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Now, if you've already gone away from Jerusalem, you can't very easily begin at Jerusalem. So Christ says, don't leave This is where you are to begin. I want you to stay here and I want you to wait. Christ is here speaking as that king to whom all authority has been given in heaven and on earth. And he is directing his people. He is telling them what to do. He's telling them where to be, where to go or when to go. And here he tells them to wait for the promise of the Father, which you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, what does it mean that you should wait for the promise of the Father? Let me turn you to a few passages. One or two of them might be harder to find if you're not so familiar with your Bible, but you can look for them if you'd like to. The first is in Joel chapter 2, from verse 28. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. There is the Father making a promise. You'll find language also in Isaiah 32, which helps to understand this. Verse 15. Until the spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is counted as a forest. All those words that we already heard from Isaiah chapter 44, (coughs) verse 3. I will pour water on him who is thirsty, and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants, and my blessing on your offspring. And then Ezekiel and chapter 11 and verse 19. I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within them and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. And they shall be my people and I shall be their God. And then in Ezekiel 36 and verse 25 and following... I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. When our Lord refers to God's people here, waiting for the promise of the Father, to whom is he referring? Because it is a who, it is not a what. 
This gift is a person. This gift is none other than the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. Our Lord further identifies him as the one of whom he spoke to the apostles. For John truly baptised with water, but you shall be baptised with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, if you go back, for example, particularly into the Gospel of John, some of you will, will know well those chapters that follow on from the upper room, where in 14 and then 15 and 16, our Lord is speaking to his servants about what will happen after he goes. And he tells them, it will be better for you that I depart. You can imagine the disciples, how can it be better that Christ should go away? Because, says Christ, if I go away, I will send the Spirit to you. Those chapters in John's Gospel are rich and ripe with assurances, with promises, with instruction, with declaration that the Spirit who will be given to them, coming from the Father and from the Son, the promise of the Father, that he will be the one who will take the things that belong to the Lord Jesus and show them to these apostles. Even before his death, there's that beautiful moment where Christ wants his disciples to make the connection so that when the Holy Spirit is given, they understand from whom it comes. In John chapter 20, you remember how the Lord Jesus, it's recorded in the 22nd verse, breathes on his disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. So that when he's poured out, they will understand this as that breath of God which has been given to them. Christ's command then is to wait. Don't go. Don't leave. But stay here. Wait for the Father's donation. Wait for the promise of the Father. Wait for Christ's representative. I think we may have mentioned last week that there is only one person of whom it might properly be said that he is Christ's vicar, <coughs> Christ's representative, and that is the Holy Spirit. That's why I'm not a vicar. It's why we don't acknowledge the Pope of Rome as the vicar of Christ. Christ has his God-given representative in the Church of Jesus Christ. And it is the Holy Spirit by whom he makes himself known to us still. And so Christ says to his people, don't go, but wait. Stay here in Jerusalem. The promise of the Father is coming. And then he gives them that promise fleshed out. For John truly baptised with water, but you shall be baptised with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So there's contrast here and there's progress as well. John the Baptist prepared the repenting Israelites to receive the Messiah with his water baptism. But again, you might remember the particular way that John identifies himself in connection with the one who is going to follow on afterwards. 
John goes into all the region around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Turn from your sins, said John, and you will receive pardon. Identifying himself as the forerunner, the one who came before the promised king. And then in verse 16, because the crowds were flocking to him and they're asking, could this be himself the Christ? He says... I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And our Lord now, that one who the greatest man who lived, the last of the prophets, John the Baptist, could testify of himself, I'm not worthy to undo the, the straps of his sandals. Now Christ is here in his risen glory and he's pointing back where John pointed forward. And he said, John did baptize you with water. John prepared the way. But I now am going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That fulfillment of the promise is now imminent. Again, Luke's tying this together with the end of his gospel. Chapter 24 and verse 49. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but wait in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. That's the essence of this promise. This is Luke making sure Theophilus, the man to whom he's writing this, is joining up all the dots. You see how we're just picking up the end of that narrative, Theophilus. And this same reality is now moving forwards. You are going to be baptised, he says to his disciples, by the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. So this is neither distant nor recurrent. One event is going to happen to these men, and it's going to happen before very long. They are going to be baptised with the Holy Spirit, and that is not far away. And there's a very real sense in which that act is the beginning of the last days. We are in the last days. Now, before you think I'm going to start some kind of prophetic rant, I hope you will understand, especially if you've been here for any length of time, what we've said before about this. That the last days are the period between the first and the second coming of Jesus Christ. So you have the ascension of the Lord Jesus and the pouring out of the Spirit. And that then sets us into the last days, the last great section in the divine calendar before the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Saviour says to his disciples here, that is about to take place. I will go to my Father and to your Father and I will give you the Holy Spirit that you may know this power from God for the work that I have given you to do. And do you notice that all the language here is the language of gift and grace? There's no merit here. There's no labour that needs to be carried out in order that they might receive a gift. A gift that is not freely given is a debt paid off. It's a wage bestowed. This is the promise of the Father. This is the gift of the risen Jesus Christ. And all they need to do is to wait for it. To stay where they're told 
in anticipation of God's favour poured out, this spirit baptism granted at the appointed time. The command and the promise. Therefore, when they'd come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? There's the question. Perhaps some hours, maybe even some days have passed. These men have had time to consider what the Lord Jesus Christ has said to them. Now, let's take into account that the Holy Spirit is yet to be poured out, and let's make allowances on that account. Let's understand also that these men have operated throughout with a set of specific assumptions and expectations. And those assumptions and expectations are not accurate. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The question suggests at least that their understanding of what the Lord Jesus is going to go on doing and teaching, that what he's going to do in granting this gift, giving the promise of the Father, this spirit who the risen Lord will pour out from the glory into which he ascends, that the way the apostles are still thinking at this point is too low, too shallow, and too narrow. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Suggests that these men see the kingdom of God as primarily political, as temporal, as national, as territorial. Now, it's fun to quote Calvin here. He, he may be a little bit too harsh, but Calvin on this says, there are as many errors in this question as there are words. They've just got the wrong end of the stick. They're looking down and they're looking back. They have failed to understand what is taking place. Now remember there have been times up to this point when the Lord has expressed a measure of holy frustration with his disciples. When, when he told them about the leaven of the Pharisees and because we haven't brought any bread, he said, don't you understand? Or have I been with you so long, Philip, and you don't yet know that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? Up to this point, these men seem to be still spiritually short-sighted. Now, don't overlook how far they've come. Jesus is the King. He's the King of Kings. He is for them the Saviour. They are trusting in him. But their notions of his kingdom are too limited. For them it is primarily Jewish. It's local. It's immediate. And it's earthly. They seem to think, as many of the Jews were hoping and expecting, that the restored kingdom would be the Davidic glory come back again. That the Romans would be thrust out of Jerusalem and Judea. That an earthly kingdom would be re-established. And that there would be a king after David's line who would be ruling again in Jerusalem. They want that back again. They're looking to what once was. They're not looking to what God has promised. They're looking low in terms of merely earthly realities. And they have forgotten that they are serving a king who said, My kingdom is not of this world. 
And the Lord Jesus says, in effect, you're not looking high enough and you're not looking far enough and you're not looking wide enough. You're looking backwards. And I've just promised you that the Spirit of God, the promise of the Father, is going to be poured out upon you. And so he gives them this answer. It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So first of all, there's a correction, and then there is a commission. The correction is, in essence, it is not your job to pry into the divine calendar. Now, he's said this before when they've asked similar questions. You can find it, for example, in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 36. Of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Or in Mark 13 and verse 32. Of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Our Lord has emphasised before that to use the language of Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29, there are certain hidden things that belong to God. Some things have been revealed, and those we should take and we should trust and we should live in accordance with them. But some things are so hidden that even the incarnate Son is not aware of all the details. God has sovereignly but secretly decreed a timetable of salvation. And the Lord Jesus says in effect to his apostles, when God stops speaking, you shouldn't start guessing. Take what God has said and rest there. Do you think the Lord Jesus still needs to give this warning to his church? <laughs> People love dates and times, don't they? People love speculation and imagination about what God will do next. Everything from the guy with the sandwich board is walking around saying the end is nigh. Well, in the biblical theological level, that's true. You know, the next great event is the end. But so often it's, I've got a date I've got a time. Let's calculate the seasons. Let's work out what the numbers mean. Let's look at the stars in the sky. Let's try and interpret all the symbols. And then let's try and arrange things. And you even end up with people sometimes doing fearful damage to their own bodies, sometimes even suicide itself because they think that they're ushering in the end of things. Or you see people who are being duped by people who know that they can fool the foolish so that they would say, you you need to sell all your goods and invest them in this and it doesn't matter because the world's going to end in a week anyway except that it doesn't or people who who sacrifice everything not for a wise and good purpose but under the false notion that somehow the world is going to end at a date that's been predicted by somebody based on something that cannot be known my friends give up on the times and the dates if you're at all tempted to this kind of speculation or imagination, then let it go. God stopped speaking about this and you need to not start guessing. We're in the same situation really as the apostles. We know that the end is coming. 
We know that Christ will return on the last day. But do you remember everything that the Lord Jesus spoke through those chapters in Luke that we're reading again in the Lord's Day morning services? You do not know when the Master will return. So live now as if it could be today. It could be a thousand years from now. It could be less than a thousand seconds from now. It could be before this sermon is over. It could be long after all of us have been laid in our graves. Does it matter? Not to us. Because we know what we're to do today. We know what we need to do tomorrow. We have been given God's marching orders, and so were the apostles. It is not for you to know the times and seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Brothers and sisters, we can leave those safely with the God to whom they belong. He knows, he is wise, he is good, he is faithful. That is his business, and the hidden things belong to God. But you, there is something for you to do. Leave speculation and imagination, says Christ to his apostles, and give yourselves to action. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You want it all now. You're expecting that within perhaps a few days or weeks or months, Christ is going to be raised up as some earthly king and the Lord will, go, will restore the kingdom to Israel. And the Lord Jesus says, God's timing for the establishment of his kingdom on earth, the return of the Christ, that's his business. You are living in the space between and in the space between power will be given to you. A work is granted for you and you need to understand the range and the scope of what I'm giving you to do. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You have a work to do, Christ says to his disciples, which only the Holy Spirit in you will enable you to accomplish. You cannot do this in your strength. You cannot do this in your wisdom. For the establishment of the kingdom of God, it is necessary that the Holy Spirit should be granted. And that's what carries us back to that promise of the Father. The Spirit poured upon us from on high so that the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is counted as a forest. Who is going to take dry, dead soil and make it bring forth fruit. It is the Spirit of God. Isaiah 44, verses 3 to 5. I will pour water on him who is thirsty, floods on the dry ground. I will pour my Spirit on your descendants, my blessing on your offspring. They will spring up among the grass like willows by the watercourses and they will call themselves the people of God. Who does that? The Spirit of God. When the Lord puts a heart of flesh where before there was only a heart of stone, by whom does he accomplish that saving operation? 
It is by the Spirit of God. When God says, I will put a new spirit within you, it is by his Spirit that the heart and minds of men and women are transformed, that though once dead in their sins, now they are alive together with Christ Jesus. It's Luke 24, 49 again. I send the promise of my Father upon you. Tarry, wait in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. There's a hint here of personality as well as a declaration of power. It is God the Holy Spirit who will empower these men to accomplish this work. When he has come upon you, then you shall be fit for purpose. My friends, the power that the church needs is not some kind of social and cultural cachet. It's not some political or military strength. It is not even the, the mere verbal eloquence or the personal charisma of men. The power that the church needs for the carrying out of its God-given mission always has been and still is spiritual power. And I mean that with a capital S. It is only by the Spirit of God that we are able to do what God has called us to do. And that is as true for us now as it was in the days of the apostles. You remember how despicable these men were in the eyes of the great ones of the day. And yet they had been with Jesus. They're men who, having been baptised with the Holy Spirit, are filled with him again and again. And the eloquence with which they speak is not just the eloquence of a naturally gifted orator. Not the unusual eloquence of a fisherman who suddenly discovered that he's got the gift of the gab. It's the eloquence of a man who has been gripped by the reality of the risen Christ and who under the influence of the Spirit of God testifies of him with courage and with clarity. One of the great battles and one of the great concessions or defeats that the church has given itself to in these days is the imagination that we need the world's weapons to fight God's battles. You wait, says Christ, until the Holy Spirit is given to you. For his is the power by which you will accomplish the work I give you. The commission then involves this power and it is spiritual. It involves a particular work and that work is evangelical. You shall be witnesses to me. Now again, our Lord seems to be drawing particularly on the prophecy of Isaiah at this point. In Isaiah 43 and verse 10, again, listen to the echoes. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. Or 44 and verse 8, do not fear or be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. You understand? Hope you see the echoes when the Lord Jesus thinks back to what Isaiah had said concerning the God of heaven and his servant who would come. 
and the spirit who would be given and the witnesses who would be sent with his resurrection mind full of the truth of God drawing on these riches of the prophet Isaiah he says you're my witnesses you're to bear witness to me you are to speak of my person you are to declare my work the risen Jesus in his glory says I I am the substance of your testimony what does the world need to know what does the fallen world need to hear what do you need to know if you are going to be saved you need to know about Jesus the son of God who died for sinners rose again on the third day who ascended up into heaven after 40 days who reigns now in glory and is returning to judge the world at the last day the Jesus who by virtue of his shed blood and on account of his spotless righteousness is able to save you if you put your faith in him Jesus says go in the power of the spirit and tell them that Tell them something that the world thinks is foolishness. Tell them something that the world thinks is utterly unreasonable. Tell them something that the, the world thinks is, is offensive to every right-thinking person. Tell them something that cuts at the very root of all their self-righteousness. And tell them not in your own strength and not in your own eloquence, but in dependence upon my spirit. The foundational testimony that we have, the inheritance of truth that has been passed down to us, is the testimony of Christ's witnesses who spoke of the Jesus whom they knew and whom they had seen die and whom they had seen alive again, to whom he had shown himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. And though we should be careful not to push it too far, let me remind you what the word witnesses sounds like in Greek. Martyr. If you were transliterating, if you were just taking the Greek sounds and turning them into English, you are martyrs to me. Now, martyrs means witnesses. But we know the cost of such witness. Our language of witness, martyr, has become so associated with faithfulness unto death that to us a martyr is someone who dies for the cause. Witnesses to Christ are ready to lay down their lives for him. These men, if they're going to be witnesses to Christ, he has warned them, has he not, that what they have done to the master, they will do to the servant. Did they hate me? They will hate you also. And I'm sending you out in my name as my ambassadors to be witnesses for me. The commission involves a power which is spiritual. It involves a work which is evangelical. And now look at its range in Jerusalem now the men who think that God's about to restore the kingdom to Israel that seems quite reasonable 
and in all Judea. Well, Solomon's kingdom extended to that extent, did it not? And even Samaria and to the end of the earth. Your conception of the kingdom, says Jesus, is too low, it's too narrow, and it's too shallow. And perhaps he has in mind once again the prophet Isaiah. It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. My friends, we are the recipients of that promise. We are the inheritors of that grace. Start in Jerusalem. Is there no grace in that? Start with the men who put me to death. Start with those who bade for my blood. Start with the priests and the Pharisees and the scribes. Start there and tell them that whoever believes in Jesus as the Christ of God will know the forgiveness of all their sins and the grant of life everlasting. Then go through all Judea and Samaria. Go even to Galilee of the Gentiles. Go to those rotten, stinking Samaritans who you think don't even count. So that for Jews, when they passed back from Samaritan or Gentile territory, sometimes they felt the need for a ceremonial washing to get the filth of where they'd been off their skin. Christ says, you go and you tell them about me. And then you go to the end of the earth. Because under the powerful influence of the Holy Spirit, as these apostles carry out their appointed work, that good news is going to spread through all the earth and the Jesus to whom they testify is going to prove the salvation of God to the ends of the earth. The power is truly spiritual. The work is genuinely evangelical. The range is universal. There is not a person on this earth to whom these men cannot go, need not go, or allow not to go. Go into all the earth. Preach the gospel to every creature. It seems that Luke would have us understand that these are the last words of the Lord Jesus before his ascension. When he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up. These are their marching orders. These are the last words of the risen Jesus to his apostles before he ascends to sit at God's right hand on high. Do you remember how the apostle Paul, an apostle like a man born out of due time, according to 1 Corinthians and chapter 15, that he says that this kingdom is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. Here is Christ setting himself as the great block by which the whole building is established and marked out. And here he is sending his apostles to do the foundation work of witnessing to him in the power of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem, through all Judea and Samaria, and to the end 
of the earth. My friends, the saving truth of this gospel, the truth which you need and upon which many of us are now relying, is the truth of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done. You can never know him enough and you can never know enough about him. If you want to see people saved, then you must tell what the hymn calls the old, old story of Jesus and his love. You tell people of the Christ who came and lived and died and rose and ascended and reigns and returns. It goes out at his command. It's his kingdom. To him all authority in heaven and earth has been given. And the church goes with its marching orders from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in the strength which he supplies by his gracious spirit. Our continued testimony as a church is the apostolic gospel. God forbid that we should ever try and take away from it, add to it, change it, dilute it, embellish it, we need to be a people of truth. And that means the traditions of the apostles, not man's notions and imaginations, but the things which were recorded in our Bibles, the promises made, the promises fulfilled, and the promises being worked out. And the best thing for us to do is to begin where we are. It's very easy sometimes to think that if I were in a different place or other circumstances, that I'd, I'd be a better person than I am now. Sometimes I've even had people say to me, oh, just, just change all my circumstances and then watch me go. Yeah. Make me a better person, make my life easier. Take away these things, give me these things, change this, alter that, renew that, uh, take away every barrier, difficulty and obstacle, and then you see what kind of a fellow I am. So it doesn't work like that, does it? By the grace of God, we are what we are. And by the almighty grace of God, we have what we have received. You might say, well, what about us? When do we get the Holy Spirit? My friends, he's been given to the church. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on the people of God. And everyone who believes in Jesus Christ receives the Holy Spirit. The language of the book of the Acts is of one decisive grant of the Spirit and then his continued operations as Christ's own representative. These men are baptised on the day of Pentecost in the Holy Spirit and then they are filled by him again and again and again. It's not that the Holy Spirit is given and then goes. Remember who we are. We are the true continuationists. We are the completists. We have the spirit of the risen Christ. Now it is right for us, as these men did, to prayerfully long that we might know more of his operations. But it is by him that the testimony of the church of Christ still 
is truly fruitful. And that is your encouragement and your hope and mine. That in whatever Christ has given us to do, individually or congregationally, my friends, we are never left to serve in our own strength. It's not about how great you are or how great I am. It's not about how many of us there are, how rich we are, how competent we seem to be, what gifts we have accumulated, what resources are at our disposal, what kind of tools we have accumulated, what kind of glitz and glamour in the eyes of the world or even of the current church we may or may not possess. Because God, having given to us his spirit, we have received all that is needful in order that we might both know Christ for salvation and serve him in our generation. Amen.